everybody, this is Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, your Sunday afternoon news hour. I'm recording this on Saturday, November the 26th, but you'll be listening to this for the first time on Sunday, November 27th, and perhaps on the rebroadcast on Monday, November the 28th. Um, so yeah, this week, due to the, a holiday... There's been um, a lot of people are just airing old episodes, but I decided, you know what, I'll still come on, (laughs) but it will just be me today. And even though I don't um, have any other humans talking with me for this episode, um, I do have two cats. There's my cat, Dre, and a friend's cat that I'm hosting who, you know, I'm recording at a time when I thought everything would be calm, but they've decided to, you know, get active and make a lot of noise. So. You won't hear that much like commentary in English, but the cats will be making their presence known throughout the show. So on this week's episode for local news, I'll be talking about a wage increase for New York City delivery workers. In national news, I'll be discussing two different mass shootings that happened recently, one in Chesapeake, Virginia, the other in Colorado Springs. For international news, um, I'll be discussing some background about the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. So this first article is from The City, uh, which is a local uh, digital newspaper. It was written by Claudia Irizarry Aponte on November the 21st. The title is Delivery Workers Cheer $23.82 Proposed Minimum Pay Standards but not everyone's happy. Workers who get around on mopeds are pushing for a $5 increase to cover expenses like gas and insurance. Last week, the City Department of Consumer and Worker Protection proposed a minimum pay rate for the city's at-base delivery workers that would boost their hourly wages, including operating costs, to $17.87 increasing to $23.82 by April 1, 2025. Many workers who spoke to the city cheered the proposal, which would go into effect on January 1, 2023, pending a public feedback period that that concludes on December 16. We had no idea what we were getting into. We went from being seen, as one of my compañeros said, as insects or misfits, to, at this point, achieving something much bigger, said Sergio Ache, a leader of the labor group Los Deliveristas Unidos, in an interview Saturday. These minimum pay standards, I would say, are going to drastically change the delivery industry in New York City. And that's thanks to the movement we've built in fighting for the more than 65,000 delivery workers here, Ache said. To me, that's huge. But not everyone's happy. On Monday, a handful of delivery workers and members of the labor group, all of whom toil on mopeds, 
gathered at City Hall to ask the city to adjust its proposal by an additional $5, claiming its estimate of their operating costs is too low. Once the $23.82 hourly rate is fully implemented by 2025, it will include $2.26 hourly for operating expenses. Workers requested the additional $5 for expense purposes, which would bring the rate to $28.82. We are asking the city to make a $5 adjustment to go that extra mile to ensure we get a living wage said Astoria delivery worker Antonio Solis, who uses a moped for work outside of City Hall on Monday. The equipment, insurance costs, gas, maintenance, that all adds up. Hildelin Colon Hernandez, the policy director of the Workers' Justice Project, which represents the deliveristas, said the $5 proposal was not all or nothing. We are not rejecting the city's proposal. We're simply asking for an adjustment. Just like with any proposal, you have the opportunity to counter it, Colon Hernandez said Monday. Because the workers are considered independent contractors and not employers, delivery companies are not required to pay them a minimum wage. The city's proposal, similar to the regulations existing for Uber and Lyft drivers, seeks to force the companies to pay workers a regular hourly wage. The City Department of Consumer and Worker Protection estimates delivery workers currently earn as little as $4 an hour before tips. The agency's proposal follows new protections that went into effect in January of this year. Most of the city's restaurants now must let delivery workers picking up orders use the bathroom, and apps must furnish brand-identified insulated bags to workers at no cost and provide transparency around wages and tips. This is an amazing achievement, delivery worker Ernesta Galvez said in an interview. Where it was unthinkable that a delivery worker could have something resembling a minimum wage, it's now a reality. This is huge. The request for an additional $5 an hour is mostly led by workers who toil by moped, who said the city's operational cost estimates are too low to cover the cost of gas, registration, insurance, and the actual vehicle, which can cost thousands of dollars. We, we encourage all New Yorkers to submit comments ahead of the public hearing on December the 16th, said DCWP spokesperson Michael Lanza. All feedback will be considered before the final rule goes into effect. Willie Medina, who like other workers, prefers a moped to an e-bike so that he doesn't have to worry about charging the batteries, said his monthly expenses are much higher than those of, of workers who toil by e-bike or bike. He spends $35 per month for insurance and $120 per month for gas and takes his $3,800 moped for regular tune-ups, he said. Using a moped is like having a car, Medina said in Spanish, so we're a little concerned this proposal won't meet our needs. Workers who spoke with the city said they intended to submit the $5 proposal as part of the public review process. Even those who toil by e-bike, like Ache, say the starting $17.87 rate falls below the minimum wage after deducting expenses. Carmen De La Rosa, 
a Democrat, the council's labor committee chair, lauded the city's life-changing proposed minimum pay standard. It's a step in the right direction, she said on Saturday. I I honestly believe that at this point in time, to have that base pay is really going to substantially change the lives of these workers and that they deserve this pay. At City Hall on Monday, she said she was in solidarity with the workers asking for more money. Ache said that a cultural change around delivery workers, both among restaurants and customers, has been as meaningful as the city's regulations. You still have some situations where the restaurants give you a hard time with the bathrooms and letting you park your bike while you wait for the order to be ready. But people in general are more thoughtful now. They offer us coffee or water or to let us sit down for a while. Customers give us better tips and ask about our jobs, he said. When I go out on the streets, I see other workers happy and sharing positive experiences. It makes me feel proud of how far we've come. So yeah, for a change, I'm starting out the show with some good news. Um, I know that there's still the public hearing period and everything isn't completely settled, but I'm happy to see that this is moving forward, you know, especially in light of the pandemic, which, you know, I like to remind people is still ongoing. Um, We really saw what types of work were truly essential, like getting people food when they couldn't leave the home. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the people that are the most essential for making sure things don't completely collapse are not, they're not paid appropriately. They don't have the same rights that people with cushier jobs typically enjoy. So it's definitely, as they said in the article, a step in the right direction. Um, And I also think there's a lot of, um, particularly on social media, a lot of back and forth about tipping and people feeling like it's not my responsibility to tip. And I've always fallen on the side of you know, knowing how low the wages are for people working in food service, like you should always tip and tip as generously as you're able to. Because, you know, as they outline $4 an hour, like you're barely scraping by. It's not like, you know, these are people that had to fight to be able to use the bathroom, like while they were at work. And, you know, on top of that, having to deal with those conditions and then people not tipping, you know, it's just adding insult to injury in a lot of cases. But, you know, that being said, you know, just because you're using a delivery service as a customer, it doesn't necessarily mean that like you're making good money. You know, there's a lot of people who, for whatever reason, literally cannot get out of their home or they cannot cook for themselves and things like that. And they also don't have much to give extra on top of what they're purchasing. But, you know, things like this, I think, are hopeful because it seems like it would help to ease that tension somewhat that, you know, the person who's employing like these workers, in this case, these apps or whatever, they're making record profits, you know, sadly, especially with the pandemic, like because of the pandemic, like some of these companies were making record breaking profits. Um, do some more people staying inside by choice or by necessity. So, you know, they have the money to pay these people appropriately. And I'm, you know, looking forward to see like how this shakes out. I hope that they do get the additional money to cover 
um, the expenses that go along with maintaining their vehicles, like that's more than fair. Um, and as they mentioned in the article, there is a public comments um, hearing that's going to happen. So if you would like to submit a comment, you can do so at rules.cityofnewyork.us. And you can scroll down to see the minimum pay for food delivery workers link with the comment deadline of December the 16th. So again, that's rules. R-U-L-E-S dot City of New York, C-I-T-Y-O-F-N-E-W-Y-O-R-K dot U-S if you would like to submit a comment for the public hearing. That's it for our local news segment. And I know you can hear, um, this is my friend's cat in the background, creating a musical break all her own. But for our actual musical break, this is The Night Has a Thousand Eyes by John Coltrane. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for national news, um, there's actually two stories, two very tragic stories that I wanted to touch on this week. Uh, One is about a shooting that happened at a Walmart in Virginia. The other is about a fatal shooting that happened at a gay bar in Colorado Springs. Um, So first, this is from the Associated Press. The title of this article is Walmart Shooter Left Death Note Bought Gun on Day of Killing by Ben Finley and Matthew Barakat. And it was written um, just a few days ago on the 25th. The Walmart supervisor who fatally shot six co-workers at a store in Virginia bought the gun just hours before the killings and left a note on his phone accusing colleagues of mocking him, authorities said Friday. Sorry, everyone, but I did not plan this. I promise things just fell in place like I was led by the Satan. Andre Bing wrote on a note that was left on his phone, the Chesapeake Police Department said Friday. Police said the 9mm handgun used in the Tuesday night shooting was legally purchased that morning and that Bing had no criminal record. They released a copy of the note found on his phone that appeared to redact the names of specific people he mentioned. It was not clear when the note was written, but in it, Bing claimed he was harassed and said he was pushed to the brink by a perception his phone was hacked. Bing died at the scene of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. Co-workers of Bing who survived the shooting said he was difficult and known for being hostile with employees. One survivor said Bing seemed to target people and fired at some victims after they were already hit. Bing's death note rambles at times through 11 paragraphs with references to non-traditional cancer treatments and songwriting. Police have identified the victims as Brian Pendleton, 38, Kelly Pyle, 52, Lorenzo Gamble, 43, Randy Blevins, 70, and Fernando Chavez Baron, 16, who were all from Chesapeake, and Tynika Johnson, 22, of nearby Portsmouth. Chavez Baron's name was released Friday. It had been withheld previously because of his age. Uh, and this is an aside, those who knew Fernando told local news that he had just started working at Walmart and used his first paycheck to purchase a gift for his mother. Six people were wounded in the shooting, which happened just after 10 p.m. as shoppers were stocking up ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. Police said they believed that 50 people were in the store at the time. Bing was identified as an overnight team leader who had been a Walmart employee since 2010. Police said he had one handgun and several magazines of ammunition. The attack was the second major shooting in Virginia this month. Three University of Virginia football players were fatally shot on a bus November 13th as they returned from a trip. Two other students were wounded. 
And um, if you're listening and you're interested in trying to support some of the victims' families um, in Chesapeake, Virginia, there's um, WTKR News 3 has a campaign, which is an initiative in collaboration with the Scripps Howard Fund, a 501c3 organization. If you contribute to the campaign, the money will be used to support the victims and their families of the Chesapeake Walmart shooting and the donations are tax deductible. You can donate directly to the families by texting Chesapeake, that's C-H-E-S-A-P-E-A-K-E-2, 50155. That's C-H-E-S-A-P-E-A-K-E-2, 50155. And that will send um, you a link to fill out and donate. And um, on the other side of the country, uh, several days earlier, um, there was another terrible shooting that happened in Colorado Springs. Uh, This information is also from the Associated Press. The title of the article is, Gunman Kills Five at Gay Club is Subdued by Patrons. It was written by Thomas Piepert and Jesse Bedane. Bedane. And Jesse Bedane. A 22-year-old gunman opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle inside a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs, killing five people and leaving 25 injured before he was subdued by heroic patrons and arrested by police who arrived within minutes, authorities said Sunday. The suspect in the Saturday night shooting at Club Q used an AR-15-style semi-automatic weapon, a law enforcement official said. Uh, So this was on Saturday, November the 19th. A handgun and additional ammunition magazines were also recovered, according to the official, who could not discuss details of the investigation publicly and spoke to the Associated Press on condition of anonymity. The attack ended when a patron, whose name is uh, Rich Fierro, grabbed a handgun from the suspect and hit him with it, Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers told the Associated Press. The person who hit the gunman had him pinned down when police arrived, Southers said. Had that individual not intervened, this could have been exponentially more tragic, Southers said. Uh, And this is an aside. There were also two other people in addition to Rich Fierro who intervened and helped to stop the shooting. Uh, One other patron who helped was named Thomas James. The other was a trans woman who kicked the shooter in the face with her high-heeled shoes. Um, I wasn't able to find um, what her name was, but I thought it was important to point out that it wasn't just one person. It was a group effort. Charges against the suspect will likely include first-degree murder, he said. Police identified the alleged gunman as Anderson Lee Aldrich, who was in custody and being treated for injuries. Aldrich was arrested in 2021 after his mother reported he threatened her with a homemade bomb and other weapons, authorities said. They declined to elaborate on the arrest. The shooting rekindled memories of the 2016 massacre at the Pulse Gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida that killed 49 people. Colorado has experienced several mass killings, including at Columbine High School in 1999, a movie theater in suburban Denver in 2012, and a Boulder supermarket last year. 
Um, the shooting came during Transgender Awareness Week and just at the start of Sunday's International Transgender Day of Remembrance, when events around the world are held to mourn and remember transgender people lost to violence. So I'm going to um, jump ahead a little bit for the sake of time. A makeshift memorial sprang up Sunday near the club with flowers, a stuffed animal, and candles, and a sign saying love over hate next to a rainbow-colored heart. Seth Stang was buying flowers for the memorial when he was told that two of the dead were his friends. The 34-year-old transgender man said it was just it was like having a bucket of hot water getting dumped on you. I'm just tired of running out of places where we can exist safely. Ryan Johnson, who lives near the club and was there last month, said it was one of the only two night spots for the LGBTQ community and conservative lean in Colorado Springs. It's kind of the go-to for pride, the 26-year-old said of the club, which is tucked behind other businesses, including a bowling alley and a sandwich shop. Colorado Springs, a city of about 480,000 located 70 miles south of Denver, is home to the U.S. Air Force Academy, the U.S. Olympic Training Center, as well as Focus on the Family, a prominent evangelical Christian ministry that lobbies against LGBTQ rights. The group condemned the shooting and said it exposes the evil and wickedness inside the human heart. And, you know, the people that were killed in the shooting, um, all five of them have been identified. Their names were Kelly Loving, Daniel Aston, Derek Rump, Ashley Paw, and Raymond Green Vance. So I'm going to jump ahead just to some more general information about the extent of mass killings and mass shootings that have happened in the past few years. Since 2006, there have been 523 mass killings and 2,727 deaths as of November 19, 2022. According to the Associated Press USA Today database on mass killings in the country. So that database only counts mass killings. So where, you know, people were there were not just injuries, but people who died from all weapons in which four or more people excluding the offender, so not including the, the offender, were killed within a 24-hour time frame. The Gun Violence Archive, which is a slightly different database, um, it tracks mass shootings and defines a mass shooting as one in which at least four people are shot, not including the shooter. According to CNN, there have been at least 607 mass shootings through November 22nd this year. That's just short of the 638 mass shootings in the country at this point last year, the worst year on record since the group began tracking them in 2014. There were a total of 690 mass shootings in 2021. Um, so... Club Q does have a Facebook page. Uh, if you go to www.facebook.com forward slash Club Q online, that's C-L-U-B-Q-O-N-L-I-N-E. Uh, you can see uh, links that they've included for how you can help out 
people who are still struggling in the aftermath of the shooting. Um, They'll keep you updated on what's going on with the club, like they're currently closed at the time that I'm recording this. Um, There's also an organization that is set up through the state to donate money to the victims. And you can find uh, the link to donate at www.coloradogives.org forward slash donate forward slash co healing fund. And uh, once you get to the donate link, there's a drop down menu you would select for designation, the Club Q tragedy. Unfortunately, this is just given the nature of the show every week if we wanted to just talk about mass shootings we could talk about that for more than an hour and still not get to all the shootings that happens that day if not you know that week so you know please donate if you're able to to both of the funds both for the victims in chesapeake virginia and those in colorado Um, I will make sure to put those links up on our show page on Facebook and also on our Instagram. And, you know, this is a Brooklyn-based show. Um, We're not in Virginia. We're not in Colorado. And sometimes, you know, there's things that are happening, you know, across the world or across the country that dominate the headlines. But one of the best things that we can all do is try to be more committed to what's happening locally who are your community members that need protection with, you know, such violent rhetoric and, you know, this unfettered access to guns, people are feeling less and less safe. And, you know, that's where we each have a responsibility to try to be a safe place for each other, or that we try to continue to find ways to resist what's happening and not just give in to despair. Um, So with that, we're going to move to our next musical break. Uh, You are listening to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And this song is by Nina Simone. The title is I Shall Be Released. We'll be right back. They say everything can be replaced They say every distance is not near So I remember every face Of every man who put me Protection. 
must fall So I swear I see my reflection Follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. And on our show page on Facebook, we have a link to a fundraiser for Giving Tuesday for Radio Free Brooklyn. So Giving Tuesday is November the 29th. We're raising money for the station to help us stay on the air. So if you could please find it in your heart to make a donation to us for the holiday season, we would greatly appreciate it and every little bit helps. So please go to our show page, our Facebook page, and click the donate button. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for the world news, it's not exactly news, but it's it was new to me. Like I didn't know about the existence of this day called the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, which is November the 25th. I also did not, I didn't know the day existed. And there's also um, a reason for them picking that date. And it's tied to three important women that I had not heard about before I started looking into this. 
so this information comes from a JSTOR Daily article written by Livia Gershon on November 25th, and the title is Remembering the Mirabel Sisters. The subheading is International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women honors three sisters who were murdered by the Trujillo dictatorship in the Dominican Republic. Um, And for those who are not familiar, as I was just vaguely familiar with some of the outlines about Rafael Trujillo's dictatorship, this is some background information from uh, Britannica. He was the dictator of the Dominican Republic from 1930 until he was assassinated in 1961. Trujillo entered the Dominican army in 1918 and was trained by U.S. Marines during the U.S. occupation of the Dominican Republic, so that was from 1916 to 1924. Trujillo seized power in the military revolt against then-President Horacio Vasquez in 1930. From that time until his assassination 31 years later, Trujillo remained in absolute control of the Dominican Republic through his command of the army, by placing family members in office, and by having many of his political opponents murdered. The Servicio de Inteligencia Militar, or SIM, uh, the English translation of that is the Military Intelligence Service, was his main secret police force and also acted as a death squad. He strictly enforced censorship and conformity laws, ordered the murder of political opponents, and the massacre of thousands of Haitian immigrants. Um, That's one thing that I was aware of was um, his persecution of Haitians in the Dominican Republic, um, particularly in what's known as the Parsley Massacre. Um, So if you're not familiar with that, I would encourage you to look it up. Um, He also amassed great wealth for himself and his family. Domestic opposition grew in the late 1950s as his secret police force jailed and tortured even larger numbers of dissenters. Um, So now that um, there's some background on just how awful this man was, um, now back to the article about the Mirabelle sisters. In 1999, the General Assembly of the United Nations designated November 25th as the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. As Nancy P. Robinson writes, uh, and she wrote this in the journal Caribbean Studies, the commemoration recognizes gender-based violence as a political issue as well as a personal one. In fact, the day was chosen in honor of the Mirabelle sisters of the Dominican Republic, three highly visible figures whose murder was part of the story of overthrowing a dictator. Robinson notes that the victims, Patria, Minerva, and Maria, along with surviving sister Dede, are now known to many people outside the Dominican Republic thanks to Julia Alvarez's 1994 novel based on their story. In the Time of the Butterflies, and a subsequent 2000 movie. They were leaders in the opposition to the dictatorship of U.S. ally Rafael Trujillo. On November 2nd, facing an outpouring of public sentiment against his regime, Trujillo publicly stated that he had only two problems left, the Catholic Church and the Mirabel sisters. Robinson writes that Trujillo's hatred for the sisters was not just political, but personal. 
he was furious at Minerva for rejecting his sexual advances. Just three weeks later, on November 25, 1960, three of the sisters were returning from visiting their husbands who were held as political prisoners when agents of the regime caught them on a mountain road, murdered them, and threw their car off a cliff to simulate an accident. The murder helped galvanize opposition to Trujillo. Six months later, he was assassinated. With the help of tireless work by the surviving sister, Dede, the women became national icons. In 1981, the feminist encounter of Latin American and the Caribbean in Colombia designated November 25th as the Day for Nonviolence Against Women in honor of the Mirabel sisters. Delegates at the conference denounced domestic violence, rape, and sexual harassment, as well as political violence targeting women. By this time, Robinson writes, the issue was part of a broader struggle against military dictatorships across Latin America. During Argentina's dirty war of the 70s and 80s, some women gave birth in prison and had their babies adopted by families friendly to the military dictatorship while they were disappeared. In the 1980s, four American nuns were murdered by military forces in El Salvador. In Guatemala, the army used rape and torture as a deliberate weapon against Maya women. Latin American feminists paved the way for a broader recognition of connections between interpersonal and political violence. In the 1990s, the UN campaign for women's human rights pushed for more attention to the matter. Delegates were moved by recent campaigns of systemic rape and impregnation used by Serbian forces against Bosnian women and by Hutu militia groups against Tutsi women in Rwanda. By the time they created the International Day at the decade's end, echoes of the Mirabel sisters could be heard around the world. So yeah, I mean it's not um it's not exactly news as I said, but I I wasn't even aware that November 25th had been designated for that purpose. Um and I was very interested to learn about um the three Mirabel sisters who I you know, I don't know as much as I would like to about um, the history of the Caribbean. But uh, there is a PDF of a journal article that I'll share with you on our show page. Um, and it ref- it's uh, written by the author mentioned in the article, Nancy P. Robinson. The title is Origins of the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, the Caribbean Contribution. And that's from volume 34, issue number two of Caribbean Studies. So it's a very interesting read. um, So you can educate yourself more about this on your own time. And, you know, it's horrible that they lost their lives the way that they did and that this continues to be an ongoing problem, like the way that women and, you know, not just women, but people who are um, oppressed minorities, like gender minorities are treated still in the world. It can sometimes feel like there isn't progress being made, but we have to continue to fight regardless. So 
I would encourage you to read more, read up more on these sisters and their legacy and like what we can do today to honor their memory. And um, speaking of memory, we have a sad rest in peace announcement uh, for a native New Yorker. So the Academy Award, Golden Globe, and two-time Grammy Award-winning actress and singer Irene Cara passed away recently. She was only 63 years old. Uh, She had been born in the Bronx to a Cuban mother and a Puerto Rican father. Cara had been singing, dancing, acting, and playing instruments from the age of five. She appeared on The Electric Company, recorded albums in Spanish and English as a child, acted on Broadway as well as in television miniseries and films. And uh, this part of her her filmography is very important to me. In 1976, she played the title role in Sparkle, which is a movie about three sisters in Harlem trying to make it in the music business in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, The soundtrack was written by Curtis Mayfield and recorded by Aretha Franklin. And it's just, it's a movie that I remember growing up, like when I would visit um, my late grandmother over the summer, like me and my cousins would all get together and watch it on the fat back television when it would come on. And Irene Cara played um, the young sister named Sparkle in the film. Uh, Her breakout role was was after that movie It was when she starred as Coco Hernandez in the 1980 film Fame. She also sang the theme song, which earned her a Grammy nomination for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance in 1981. song Flashdance, What a Feeling, won her Grammys for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance and Record of the the Year, as well as a Golden Globe and an Academy Award for Best Original Song. Um, Irene Cara was the first Black woman to win an Academy Award in a non-acting category. So yeah, very sad to see that she passed. Like 63 is very young to go. Um, But she definitely left a mark on the entertainment industry. So in her memory for our last musical break, this last track is Flashdance, What a Feeling by Irene Cara, followed by Giving Him Something He Can Feel by Aretha Franklin from the feature film Sparkle. You've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thanks for listening and have a good rest of your week. Bye. When there's nothing but a slow glowing dream that your fear seems to hide deep inside your mind. All alone, I have cried silent tears full of. In a world made of steel
You turn a one. 